now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Okay, well, hey, good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, Reclaiming That Which Has Always Been in You. So happy to be with you here today, uh, every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and like I said, any other time in between. I am Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me, or if you want me to leave your leave me your comments about today's show, just invite you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. And if you would like to call in and be part of the show today, I always enjoy it when people call in. Uh, that number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. Now, uh, for people tuning in for the very first time, I just want to say welcome, you know, welcome aboard and, and everything. And just wanted to share uh, before we actually get to uh, today's show that uh, that this particular show, these broadcasts always focus on the integration of spirituality and mental health within the context of our relationships. Because, you know, apart from popular belief, we are not islands unto ourselves. Okay, so what John Donne wrote a long, long time ago, uh, it's just simply not true. We are not islands, uh, but we must be in relationships. And these can be personal relationships. These can be professional relationships. But we are social beings, and so we will be in relationships. So this, uh, you know, as I said, these shows uh, focus on how do we integrate our own spirituality, our own spiritual outlook, and our own mental health within our relationships. And that's relationship that we have with ourselves, because certainly we engage in a lot of self-talk. And the relationships that we have with others, you know, the interpersonal relationships and just social cues and social interactions and, and so forth. And certainly our relationship with God or the divine. Well, it is my great pleasure to be with you here today. And I hope that wherever you are in the world today, that you are safe and that you your peace just rests in your heart. Now, I just wanted to say from the outset that uh, these uh, broadcasts are also podcasted. In case you want to go back and listen again, or just in case you, you know, miss a show or you cannot stay the whole time, you know, this hour with me. So just go on the website again and just click on the archive section. Right? Well, Welcome to August. Here we are, August 5th, and if nobody welcomed you to August, let me be the first one just to say welcome. Here we are. And, uh, you know, for me, growing up, uh, August was always a, a like a transitional month. You know, we still had lots of summertime and so forth, but, you know, transitions and our thoughts were moving to, you know, back to school shopping or, uh, you know, we had uh, preseason football as we just had the Hall of Fame game last night. And so we're kind of gearing up for the new season. And of course, you talk to any team out there right now, the pros, uh, everybody looks good. Um, but 
And again, everybody looks good on paper, but we shall see as the things get started. So, um, as well as a whole host of other things that people are just gearing up um, to. In fact, the people who love the season of autumn, uh, you'll be happy to know that uh, the pumpkin spice materials are out in full force. You can get pumpkin spice anything these days, and uh, the store shelves are well stocked. So if you can't wait for September slash August, or uh, I mean October, you can get all those supplies right now in August. Okay, And... Um, Again, for those of you who are new to the program, I'd just like to say uh, just a little bit about um, how I came up with reclaiming authenticity. Uh, this was something that uh, had developed in me over time and just really, I should say, germinated with a lot of uh, beliefs that I have, a lot of personal beliefs. And so from the outset, um, I am just a, a firm believer that all of us uh, come into the world already equipped and graced with everything that we need for in this life in terms of our skills, our talents, strengths, character traits, our giftedness, so on and so forth. Uh, and it's unfortunate that, that as we go along in life and maybe at a very, very young age and due to some unpleasant experiences, we may feel that we need to hide those skills or those talents or those strengths, you know, or we feel like we need to push those things way down so that others cannot see it. Because perhaps for one reason or another, we were ridiculed for having a particular gift. Or once the person found out something about us that we were really good at, they were jealous, and that giftedness in us became exploited and turned against us or something. Or Maybe um, you may have experienced uh, the, you know, the, the, the belief that uh, somebody told you that you would never amount to anything or whatever other voice you heard telling you that there was really nothing special to you. And that's simply not the case. But at any rate, we do not realize our giftedness. And, and when we allow those things to come in and actually steal what we already have, what we already come into the world with, we often go through life functioning from that place of emotional woundedness instead of a place of healing and wholeness and hachetas, uh, that uniqueness, that thisness that everybody has. You know, it cannot be duplicated. You have your own uniqueness. I have my own uniqueness and so forth. And yet there is so much more to us than what we have become so far. And this is what reclaiming authenticity is all about. Having that courage, finding that courage to reclaim that which has always been in you from the very beginning. And echoing this sentiment, one of my teachers, uh, Joseph Rael, in a recently published work uh, entitled Becoming Medicine, Pathways of Initiation into Living Spirituality, he wrote, the way you become a medicine person is you practice who you are because you are already medicine. No one gives it to you. You are already it. And you know, what a gift to yourself and the world and to others to realize that you are already medicine, that you already have everything you need. Our job then is we just have to work out, work, work on clearing out everything that gets in the way of that medicine 
in terms of our unresolved emotional woundedness or the pain that we've suffered in life, or uh, perhaps we've never resolved the losses in our life, or maybe it's a matter of uh, forgiving what's been done to us, or even asking for forgiveness because of things that we have said or done to others. And along with that forgiveness, there is this sense of gratitude in our lives. How grateful am I for who I am and everything that has, you know, everything that I have experienced that has really been a teacher to point out um, the growth that I have as well as how much growth I need to continue discovering. Okay. And I, and um, speaking of discovering, I found that whenever we have that combination of very strong forgiveness and we're working through those who have hurt us and, and we're able to forgive and so forth, as well as just generating this beautiful uh, sense of gratitude, how that really opens up our hearts, kind of like a rose opening up in full bloom, where we can really you know, that the wonderful scent of the rose can be smelled to all people around it. You know, it really opens up our hearts to be able to love even more deeply than we could have possibly even imagined. Okay? So, what a gift to yourself and the world when you already realize you are medicine for others. Well, I'm going to be taking your calls in a little while after the break, because uh, I really want to hear from you, you know, whether or not you ever been, say, contacted by a loved one after they passed. This could be a dream. This could be a vision. This could be something where you heard their voice calling out to you. Or perhaps you were minding your own business, walking along one day, and you smelled their perfume or their cologne, and nobody else was around. Or Maybe you feel like you've been contacted by your loved one through technology. For example, it could be like when the phone rings once and you go to pick it up. And it seems as though nobody's on the other end, but you get this very strong sense that your loved one just reached out to you. And some people have been contacted by a loved one either through pets or other indigenous animals. Okay. Again, it's, I know that I know that I know that my loved one is close to me because of these things that have happened. Oftentimes they don't make sense, but that's okay because it means something to you. And that's the important part. And, you know, over the years and, and of course, decades and decades, society has been increasingly open to people sharing more and more of these experiences as well as you know, searching for people and forums in which they can share these stories safely. But uh, there is there is a wonderful website, such a website devoted to providing that safe place for people to share their after-death communication stories. It's uh, the After-Death Communication Research Foundation, and their website is www.adcrf, as in Fox. Uh, dot, so and when you go on that website, you'll see that it just opens up. It's just a very beautiful website, and there's many resources. To, if you want to do a little research in this area or um, read some more 
uh, books on the subject and so forth, as well as um, there is just testimonies after testimonies and stories that people have shared about how their loved ones have reached out to them. Well, today we're going to be taking a look at the psychological, emotional, and spiritual benefits of after-death communication. Now, if you were with me last week, uh, you'll remember that um, you know, I began the broadcast by sharing with you how I became involved with after-death communication. You know, this wasn't something that I was taught in school. This isn't something that uh, I just simply, you know, like, where do you learn this stuff? And but I'll share with you how I became involved. I mean, early in my career as a, as a combination of a mental health practitioner and a pastoral prevent, uh, professional, um, I became involved with bereavement counseling. And uh, I helped a lot of people through their loss and grief issues. And that seemed to come naturally to me since I grew up myself experiencing many losses in my life. Uh, in fact, death and dying was nothing new to me. It seemed to be when I was just in and around funeral homes and and uh, different services, you know, memorial services, or even uh, you know officiating at funerals and so forth. That was just something that I felt very comfortable doing and sitting and talking with um, family members and loved ones, uh, and just what they experienced and the struggles with their faith and coming to terms with uh, you know just. Trying to make sense of their loss. Uh, and like I said, the number of losses that I had experienced in, in my lifetime, I certainly, I too, certainly needed to work through all of this, you know, very, very personal, personal level. And yet, since death and dying was, you know, there was nothing new to me about that. I was very familiar with it. What was new to me was the way people shared their stories about their loved ones showing up. You know, not so much about the details of their loved ones coming to them in dreams or visions, but rather I noticed how these appearances made them feel. And, and this is what I mean. As they talked, I sensed you know, a wonderful wave of peace and a, an assurance that came over them like they never had before. In fact, they often told these stories in a very peaceful manner. They're not uh, kind of a matter-of-fact tone of, like, well, this happened and that happened, this happened, but in a way in which they knew their loved one was all right, safe, and whole. And they would say things, you know, just very calmly that, yeah, my grandmother showed up the other night in my dreams and told me that I was going to be okay. Or there were times when people would say, I was out walking last night, and I smelled my father's cologne, and I could swear he was walking right beside me. Now, in all honesty, I don't know how after-death communication works. I mean, I, I don't know if our loved ones go up and tap God on the shoulder and say, uh, uh, God, is it okay if I just pop down there for a little bit, you know, just five minutes? No, 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 just five minutes, and I promise I'll be right back. I won't take long. Okay, good. Thanks. Okay, God. Thank you. You're the best. I don't know how it works. No, I don't know if people need to get permission to pop in. I just know that people all over the world have been experiencing, you know, just being reached out to by their loved ones. 
And from what I gather, it's always been a kind of communication that is very peaceful, a kind of communication that brings about some level of reconciliation, you know, to one degree or another. And it really helps facilitate a person working through their. It also helps a person, you know, work through their pain and work through, you know, big issues, like I said, with forgiveness and gratitude and love. The losses that we have in our life are always in the context of relationships. We cannot avoid it. So these after-death communications come in the context of the relationship that we had with the loved one who passed. Well, recently I was uh, told a story by a teenage girl whose deceased grandmother would show up every night at 7 o'clock. 7 p.m., right on the dot. And um, this girl told me that uh, she would be in her family's finished basement doing her homework after supper. And at 7 o'clock, a mantle clock would chime seven times. Oh, I said. Well, was that the time when your grandmother passed? I think so, replied the girl. She died in the hospital, so I wasn't really allowed to go see her. I think that's why she shows up every night. Okay. Uh, well, does it bother you? Uh, no, I kind of like it. It's just my grandmother saying hi. And, uh, well, better keep that clock wound, I said, so it doesn't stop. And uh, the girl replied, oh, I don't need to do that. And, and of course, that I had to raise another question. Well, what do you mean by that? And she said to me, the clock doesn't work. It's broken. In fact, it never worked. And at that moment, I knew that she knew exactly what after-death communication was. It didn't chime any other time during the day, but right at 7 o'clock, because she would check her watch or on her phone or something, that mantle clock would chime seven times. And this allowed us to go deeper with her grief and to really get in there and you know she definitely missed her grandmother but it allowed us to engage in a conversation and conversations about what she truly missed about her grandmother or how special her grandmother was to her and if uh, her grandmother passed on any on any words of wisdom or she has any trinkets or knickknacks of her grandmother just to hang on to to be reminded of this and, and pictures of her grandmother and so forth. And uh, it was really just a nice way to help this girl just normalize her feelings as well as, like she said, kind of like the idea of my, my grandmother's just saying hi. And so I don't know if she's told anybody else about this, but um, she felt comfortable enough to share this story with me. And, um, you know, that. And other stories like this, uh, people who are just sharing these experiences that happen, uh, not by what we do or not by coaxing it or, you know, doing something that would just bring it about. It just, these things happen. And, and in sitting back and just realizing not just what happened, but also how they just have an effect on us really helps us emotionally. 
It helps us spiritually. It helps us psychologically. It really helps us with our grief, as well as it really enhances our relationship. You know, when a loved one passes, there is a natural urge in us to want to stay connected to our loved ones. Now, way, 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 way back, uh, decades and decades and decades and decades ago, you know, in earlier bereavement studies, there was a strong advice for us that uh, we just needed to get over our losses just as quickly as possible and get rid of, donate our loved possessions, move on with our lives and start reconnecting with other people. And a lot of people took that advice to heart. The problem with that advice was that it didn't really help people grieve. And and instead, it it only taught us to, well, hurry up and stuff those feelings and memories of the relationship, to stuff them deep down inside and put those pictures away and don't think about it. You'll get over it faster. But it only made matters worse when it came to working through our grief because it totally ignored the fact that we will always be connected to our loved ones. We'll always be connected with them as we are reminded of their birthdays or weddings, or funerals, or holidays, or vacations, or any other day that you know they come to mind. And when these occur, it's very normal and healthy for us. Even if we you know, have memories that are not so great or very painful, and when this occurs, it reminds us that grief is a process, and it does take time. Just like forgiveness is a process, and it does take time. As I said before, there's also an aspect of reconciliation with this after-death communication, that even though we didn't have the best relationship with, with our loved one, when we have this experience, some people have reported that their loved one asked for forgiveness, or their loved one just reported, you know, I'm so sorry that this happened, or, or something. And so that creates a nice reconciliation between the survivor and the one who had passed. And, you know, I think what one of the first things that really needs to be cleaned up, cleared up, I should say, for many people who don't quite understand after-death communication, uh, or they just, just flat-out refuse it or even fear it, is just beginning with just a simple understanding of what it's not, okay? So after-death communication is just, it's not us trying to make contact with our loved ones or going to the place of their death and calling out, hello, hello, are you there? After-death communication is also not us breaking out a Ouija board or contacting our loved ones to get a message about about the next big purchase. Like, do you think that's why I buy this now? Or asking for help and making a decision about whether or not it's the right time for us to get married or some other big decision coming up. And after-death um, communication is also not about attending a seance. That is, to make contact with the other side to see if heaven is for real. It's just, it's none of those things, none of the above. But instead, what after-death communication is, is that our loved ones reach out to us at random. And they are universal. And that they occur for anyone regardless of differences in culture or language. As I said, people all over the world have these experiences. 
And after-death communication is also spontaneous in that they're random. They can occur at any time, whether we are awake or asleep. You know, some people you know, have very, very vivid dreams. Other people have visions. And most of the time, after-death communication occurs when we are simply minding our own business. And you know, what I've discovered is that after-death communications are also multiple. Because most of the time, people perceive more than one over their lifetime. Such as, let's say, at one point, they have a dream. And later on, they might have a vision. Or they might have a dream and then hear the voice of their loved one. Or whatever it might be. So it's also very common for people to experience just multiple, maybe two, three different aspects of after-death communication. And this is something that, uh, you know, as I said, I started off in the world of grief and bereavement. This is something when I started to do my own research with after-death communication and just listening to people talk about their experiences. And on one occasion, well, last week I shared that I had um, had uh, shown my um my research at the after-death communication uh, at the International Near-Death Experience Conference at Virginia Beach way, way back in, in 2004. And I, I spoke about how people experienced, how loved ones would show up in dreams. You know, we all dream, we all have dreamt of our loved ones, but there was something different about after-death communication that showed up in a dream knew it was real they knew they received the message because they woke up and their their little heart was pounding or, or something you couldn't convince them otherwise and you know some people have visions like i said that perhaps it only lasted a few seconds and then the loved one was gone but people would swear that they recognized who that person was in that vision and they would also hear their loved ones calling out you know, some people would sense their loved one's presence through, let's say, non-indigenous animals that show up at random. You know, or an animal typically doesn't live, or an animal that perhaps was a favorite of your loved one. This is something I shared last week that um, the pastor's wife who had married us, um, the pastor who had married us and his wife, she loved cardinals. And when she had passed, um, for quite some time, just didn't matter what time of the year, a bunch of cardinals would show up to, for me and my wife. And it was as if, you know, Ruth was saying, hello, I'm looking in on you too. just want to say hi, love you. And, and that gave us just a wonderful sense of peace and comfort. And some people experience, you know, um, after-death communication in, through other animals. Like maybe a peacock or a deer or a snake or a cougar or something like that. As I said, some would hear their loved one's voice through a phone. Now, if they would phone to ring once, they'd pick up, nobody was there, but they knew. And some would sense a loved one's presence through smelling their cologne or perfume. So, all in all, people receive more than one after death communication, often as many as two, three, or more throughout their lives. And as I listened to people share their after-death communication stories about their loved one, I really became interested in how this affected the person in terms of working through their loss and grief. What kind of an effect did it have on them? And they didn't 
think they were going crazy. It's just, I don't know what to do with it. But I had this incredible sense of peace, but I don't know what to do with this. You know, and, and we would sit, we would talk, ask questions of, well, did these encounters help them make sense of their laws? Maybe there was a larger purpose behind them. And did these experiences help people of faith? And what about, you know, did these experiences help people who didn't claim necessarily a faith? And was this the evidence that a lot of people needed to prove that there was a heaven? There is a heaven. And was this a way for a loved one to have closure? So that, that they had, did the person who experienced the after-death communication need that extra assurance that their loved one was okay, that their loved one was healed, their loved one was forgiven, that their loved one was told? And if this is the case, why doesn't everybody who experiences the loss of a loved one receive? let's say, an after-death communication at one time or another. Well, therein lies the psychological, emotional, and spiritual benefits of these experiences. Because after all, regardless of when a loved one dies, no one is ever fully ready to say goodbye. Even if our loved one is struggling with, let's say, a slow, progressive illness, and we see the impending death, we're still not ready. And the finality of witnessing them take their last breath brings their death right to the forefront of our hearts and our minds. We join them in that what's called a shared humanity. We bear witness to that, and we are we are there. Those instances, we like to think we've had a chance to, to say everything we ever wanted to say to the person, and vice versa. But how often do we, at some point later, struggle with some aspect of our relationship with them. And this could be years later when something will just trigger a memory. I've been hanging on to that for a long time. Why? And yet there's also times when the death of a loved one comes without warning and we don't have time to say goodbye. Or maybe we feel as though we don't have any closure with them. And in this sense, a loved one reaching out to us through after-death communication can be also the means by which we find forgiveness, can be the means by which we find peace, and, and could be the means by which we find assurance that everything is going to be okay. The same process could be said regarding finding healing from the emotional wounds of this grief. And to this day, there's still a common misunderstanding that once we have uh, assimilated our losses, we're going to go back to the way things were before that. You know, our original emotional and spiritual state or psychological state. And this return to the way things were rarely happens, but instead constantly shaped and changed by our losses. Because once we have experienced a loss, our outlook on life is forever altered by the grief that we experience. The reason for this is because our assumptions about life and the world in which we live have now been challenged, if not shattered. We might say to a friend or even say to ourselves, I had no idea something like this would ever going to happen. It's not supposed to happen this way. It's not, you know, this person is not supposed to die before me. But you know, we have to be 
accustomed to routines which define our daily existence, and the loved ones who filled those daily experiences. We never see ourselves and others and or the world the same as we once did because we are now pulled into the task of trying to make sense out of new circumstances in light of the old. What has happened to us, and, and then now what do we do? Where do we go? Who do we talk? How can I make sense of life? Where do I start? And so forth. And yet, instead of assimilating our losses into everyday life, instead of integrating them, many people, resist this healing by continuing to live in a prison of bitterness, which is reinforced by the familiar patterns of emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, low self-esteem, feelings of unworthiness or contempt, jealousy, strife, and so on and so on. And instead of looking for the potential of being made better by our losses, we often allow bitterness to harden our hearts and keep others out, all the while cementing that anguish and pain inside. The challenge, then, is for us to discover the courage, the courage to redefine ourselves in light of our pain and grief. Yet, I find that we are still compelled to ask this question. Is this whole assimilation process, this whole integration process, something we're able to do on our own? Do we need help from others? Well, I've learned that after-death communication can be experienced at any time because, you know, it really doesn't depend on us, but rather depends on what is needed at the time. Well, I would really love to hear your heart on these matters. So, again, if you want to call in, the number is 888-627-6008, and I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I am your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute. Okay, welcome back. My name is Dr. James Hauck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about the, or I am still talking about, I should say, the psychological, emotional, and spiritual benefits of after-death communication. 
and I shared before the break that, uh, you know, regardless of when uh, a loved one dies, we're never, ever fully ready to say goodbye. In fact, we'll argue for more time. And then we start to bargain. And we're like, well, if I can get another day, can I get another week? And if I can get another week with this person, can I get another month? And if I can get another month, how about I get another holiday? And while I'm at it, if I can get another holiday, how about that we also get another year together or whatever it might be? And so we're never, ever ready to say goodbye. And even if our loved one is struggling with more of a, like a slow progressive illness, like say a cancer or one of, you know, something like that, that kind of illness, and we see their impending death, we're still not ready to say goodbye. As much as we prepare, it still hits us the moment they take their last breath. And that's normal. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me when that happens. It because we are there witnessing that last breath. And whenever, you know, the we are part of that, you know, the finality of witnessing, you know, our loved one take their last breath, it really brings, you know, death and dying right to the forefront of our hearts and our minds. And as I mentioned, you know, in those times, we like to think we had a chance to say everything we ever wanted to say to that person. And we hope that they had the chance to say everything to us. But how often do we, at some point later, struggle with some aspect of our relationship with them? Or thing we might say, oh, I, oh, I should have said this, or I, I wasn't thinking at the time, and I really wanted to tell them whatever it is. And yet, there's also times when we don't have that opportunity to say goodbye. You know, when the death of a loved one comes without warning, and we just do not have that time, and we feel as though we don't have any closure with them. You know, and then in this sense, when a loved one reaches out to us through an after-death communication, that can be the means by which we find that forgiveness, peace, and assurance that everything is going to be okay. You know, and the same is also true regarding, you know, finding healing from the emotional wounds of loss and grief. And yet, as I mentioned before the break, there's still this common misunderstanding out there that uh, once we've experienced a loss, well, we can just hurry up and go back, you know, get things taken care of and just return to the way life was before the loss. Uh, in fact, I'm sure there's many, many, many companies out there in their bereavement policies that uh, say, you know, we generously give our employees three days for, you know, immediate loved one. Um, and you just think, you know, three days, you're still coming to terms with just what the heck happened. You know, maybe five days. Eh, okay. But I guarantee you. Even after five days, you're back at your desk or you're back doing the job, you're not fully back. You're just not there, and that's okay. But how we look at life has forever been changed because we're constantly changed and shaped by our losses. Because once we've experienced that loss, our outlook on life is, is altered by that grief, the shock of it all, the now what do I do, questions, and so forth. And the reason for this is because 
through their loss, you know, perhaps this is the first time in our lives in, in which our assumptions about life have been shattered. You know, this isn't supposed to happen. We are supposed to live happily ever after or whatever other assumptions we have about life. And this is how we live our lives. We live our lives, you know, through many, many assumptions. But when the death of a loved one occurs, it, those assumptions just go out the window. And we can really end up struggling with, yeah, but I thought things were going to be different. But to acknowledge that we're never going to see ourselves and others and the world the same as once we, you know, once did. Because we're now trying to make sense, you know, out of new circumstances in light of where have we been before? And it's it's really, really a struggle to stay away from the bitterness or allowing bitterness to start to creep in. Um, because, you know, maybe we didn't have a great relationship with that loved one. Or maybe, you know, now we have to really face you know, uh, fa uh, the family patterns of abuse, or we really have to uh, come to terms with our low self-esteem or codependency or contempt or jealousy, <clears throat> whatever it might be. And so we really need to, you know, to work through some pretty heavy-duty issues when a loved one dies. And, and now what do I do? There was one time, and probably decades ago, when I was uh, pastoring an inner city church, and um, I had uh, oh probably about a, a week before this this event happened, I uh, facilitated uh, a funeral of a little girl who had died uh, with, or I should say, an AIDS related illness. I believe she had pneumonia, and um, <clears throat> her mother was HIV positive herself, and, um, you know, how she contracted it, you really couldn't pinpoint one thing or one area. So her daughter was born in, you know, already being HIV positive, and it just quickly progressed. And um, the girl was only about nine. Her name was Megan. And... Um, it, the funeral itself, you know, standing room only, the place was packed, and this was at a funeral parlor. And um, there was not a dry eye, and because uh, nobody wants to see that small casket up front, uh, not even funeral directors. <clears throat> and I got to say, just a little side thought here, any funeral directors out there, you'll appreciate this, but, you know, funeral directors are a strange bunch. Uh, they just have... Because of what they, you know, do day in and day out, because of their careers, what they do, they just have, they see the world just a little bit different. They kind of have like a, a warped sense of humor and so forth. And so, um, got to know many funeral directors over over time and so forth, and they always had a joke or you know some amusing story to share, but not this time. As I said, nobody wanted to see that child's casket up front. And so there was no, um, no smiles, a lot of tears, a lot of pain. Uh, you just see on people's faces, a lot of hopelessness and just the tragedy that had really rocked, uh, her family and a community of faith. And so, uh, I shared, uh, in the message that, 
um, when a child dies, we not only grieve the past, but we also grieve the future because none of us would know now what kind of life she wanted to live as she got older or, you know, or whether or not she would want to remain single or would she want to get married and have kids or what kind of career would she do? You know, just the simple questions. What do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, just how that really, like I said, rocked the community of faith. Um, but uh, we all got through it, and it took me about three days myself to recover from that because, like I said, it was just – it was rough. Um, I had just heard a lot of lot of stories uh, at the luncheon, and um, – Again, nobody was cracking jokes or anything. It was just very, very solemn. Well, uh, about a week later, I get this phone call from her grandfather, and it was from his hospital room at a local hospital. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, great. This man just buried his granddaughter, and now he got some sort of terminal illness news or whatever. And so he's like, you know, Dr. Halk, you, you have to come see me today. You please make time. I need to talk to you. And I just said, well, okay, I'll see you this afternoon. And um, so I did. And um, not knowing what to expect, I just walked in his room and just said, you know, hey, you know, how you doing? And he was uh, sitting up in his bed, and he had this worried, puzzled look on his face, you know, not uh, in distress, but he's just like, uh, I just, <laughs> you know, just a lot of like a worried pain kind of look. And uh, he told me to sit down and he said, now, I'm going to tell you something, but swear to God, do not tell me I'm crazy. And I said, well, okay, I, you know, I wouldn't call you crazy anyway, but I promise not to do that. So go ahead. What, what's going on? And uh, he was saying, you know, the night before, about three o'clock in the morning, he was, he just woke up and sat straight up in bed. And at the edge of his bed was Megan. And she was dressed in like this white-ish, yellow, white-ish nightgown. And um, she looked healthy. She looked whole. Um, and she just turned her head to one side and gave, you know, smiled real big, gave a little wave with her hand. And then all of a sudden she was gone. And just as quickly as she appeared, poof, she was gone. And uh, he said, now, Am I going crazy? And I said, I thought you told me not to say that to you. I said, but no, I don't think you're going crazy. But I do think Megan gave you a tremendous gift. How so? What do you mean by that? I go, well, your last memory of her was when she was in her casket. And that was a tough thing to see. You know, she really, you know, wasted away, and it, it was. It was just very, very difficult. But when you saw her, you know, that morning, early, early morning, uh, she was healthy, strong, smiling, and she just waved to you. Maybe she was just telling you that she's okay now, that she's healed, that she's happy. And maybe, just maybe, she's telling you, I'll wait for you. I'll see you again because you're my grandfather. And when I said that, of course, he got choked up and he cried and he never realized that she loved him so much that she would do that for him, that she just showed up 
and just waved and almost just say hello and goodbye. But we'll say hello again someday. Now, knowing the family like I did, uh, and this is years and years and years ago, nobody else shared a story like that. In fact, I don't think anybody else in the family received that uh, after-death communication the way he did. And it doesn't make people better, less than, you know, worse than, or special because they have after-death communication or not. It just means that, again, it's what's needed in the moment. For her grandfather was really struggling with her death. He took it very hard because, like I said, when we grieve the death of a child, we grieve the future. We have so many more questions about what would she be when she grew up and so forth. But he had this incredible peace that came over him after we talked a lot more about why she showed up at that time for him. And so he just never realized it that perhaps she was giving you a gift. And that's what I think most people take away from their after-death communications, whether it's a vision, whether it's a dream, whether they smell cologne or perfume, or they see an animal that reminds them of their loved one, or they just know that they know that they know their loved one is right beside them. There's this incredible amount of peace, incredible amount of, of assurance and reassurance that, hey, I'm okay. I'm healed. Your last memory of me doesn't have to be of sickness and illness. It doesn't have to be of, of you know what you saw me wasting away and so forth. That was then, but this is now. And what a gift it is for them to share that with us. And for those who have yet to experience an after-death communication, perhaps it's something that they don't necessarily need at the moment. Perhaps they're okay. Perhaps they're finding other ways to assimilate or integrate you know, their loss that they experienced of their loved one. I mean, yeah, it's true. We have a lot of um, rebuilding of our faith and philosophical assumptions that really have been challenged by loss and grief. And, um, you know, it's just, it's something that uh, we could never imagine what happened to us, but where do we go from here? And I imagine that Megan's grandfather, um, he had not all the answers to now, what do I do kind of questions, but he certainly had the peace and perhaps even the courage to say, you know what? I can keep going, and I'll see her again someday. She's waiting for me, so whenever that time is. Okay. Well, it's certainly interesting, and you know the stories that we share when a loved one dies. Um, I try to explain it to kids themselves just by you know let's look let's look at our thumbs. You know, and I said, look at your thumbprint. And, you know, if I have ink or something, like, let's make some thumbprints here. And, you know, the kids and I start to compare thumbprints and like, wow, there's no two that are alike. Everybody has a different thumbprint. And it's true that whenever we experience the loss of a loved one, no two people are going to grieve the same way. But everybody will eventually grieve the death of a loved one, and how do we say goodbye to them?
or how do they say goodbye to us? And the children, uh, you know, young people are very forthcoming in, in sharing their stories with how their loved ones have reached back out to them. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no big deal. Grandma shows up every night at seven o'clock, chimes seven times this mantle clock that has never worked because it's broken, you know. And I just, I know it's her, you know. Or, you know, sometimes my grandpa, you know, just shows up and just, you know, you're going to be okay, kid. I love you, and that's all they need. And they just. Like I said, they haven't grown up to the point where they now start to think it's weird or try to filter out those experiences. But um, they often run into situations when they go to share these stories with adults that, uh, you know, either they're supported or they feel like, you know, they just have, they grew a second head and and they're looked at kind of funny. But um, I think this generation that's, uh, you know, certainly up and coming as well as generations that have yet to be born. They're going to be more in touch with this because I'm finding that there is certainly a hunger out there to share these stories and to be part of and to know that they have already come into this world with all the medicine they need because they are medicine. They just need us older folks to point that out to them. And it's easier for us to point it out to them when we ourselves discovered that we too are medicine. And working through the the painful experiences in our lives and, and working through unforgiveness or bitterness and finding that peace, finding that gratitude, it just really opens up those gifts even more. And so we can continue being the gift as, you know, the gift perhaps was given to us by a loved one who shows up, who has died and says, I'm going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Or I forgive you or whatever the message is. We can continue being that gift to not only ourselves, but to every person we run into, because we are social beings. We live in and through relationships. And so with after-death communication, it's really something just to listen to a person's story and just listen to the way a healing is already starting to take place emotionally, psychologically, even spiritually, and just, you know, normalizing feelings and talking about forgiveness and walking through gratitude and as well as looking at the barriers of what keeps us from wanting to forgive, what keeps us from living in gratitude so they're not going crazy, okay? And it really, really helps also uh, families and other, let's say, faith communities to give permission to talk about these stories because our loved ones are ever close to us. You know, if just by, you know, we prick our finger and we see our blood, um, there they are. There they are, right in the DNA. And we have this blood-soul connection with them that perhaps the after-death communication is reminding us of to say, you know what, not even in death, are we going to be separated because we are connected? Well, I'm Dr. James Hauk, and thank you for spending this hour with me. Thank you for listening to uh, Reclaiming Authenticity. I invite you again to be with me uh, next Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. And um, 
we'll have another uh, broadcast up and ready to go. And uh, like I said, if uh, you're listening to this at a later time, you know, thank you for accessing uh, this podcast and uh, just invite you to share these podcasts with, uh, with others. Or if somebody who's struggling with uh, an after-death communication, um, you can uh, have them shoot me an email or you can shoot me an email, drop me a line about this particular broadcast. I guarantee you that I will get back to you. So until next week, uh, everybody be careful, be safe, and may God hold us in the palm of God's hands. Take care. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.